Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Blake, consultant helping charities to increase their income and impact. On the podcast, I speak to people who can share insights from their experience relating to social impact and social change. Please do let me know what you think of this episode. I'd love to know what you take away from it, what you find most interesting, anything I could do better as your host. You can leave a review on your podcast player or send me a message by email or on LinkedIn or Twitter. All details are at kedaconsulting.co.uk. I'm joined today by Derek Bardwell. Derek's a writer, executive coach, and is CEO of 10 Years Time. He's the author of two books, No Win Race, which explores race and racism in modern Britain through the prism of sport, and his new book, Giving Back, reimagines philanthropy through a reparative lens, and this is something that we're going to be discussing today. Derek started his career in journalism before moving into the social sector, directing award-winning programmes for the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust. And for 10 years, from 2009 to 2019, Derek directed portfolios for a number of major funders responsible for distribution of over £150 million to good causes in 34 countries. Derek's currently the Chief Exec of Philanthropy Advice and Education Company 10 Years Time, which helps ambitious donors and foundations to repair harm and rebalance power by resourcing racial and economic justice with care and confidence. He's a Knowledge, Equity and Churchill Fellow and a trustee of 30 Percy and Mission 44. So welcome to the podcast, Derek. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Really nice to be here and thanks for having me, Alex. Oh yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Okay, so I was reading the new book, Giving Back, recently. Really, really interesting, really articulate a lot of interesting points in there really well. So uh, I I did realise after I invited you on, but that I see you've you've given a lot of talks and been on podcasts and things like that. So we're we're going to look to cover some new ground. Uh, so I'm I'm sure we will talk about some of the stuff in the book, but we're also going to be looking forwards and thinking about like sort of future developments and what we'd like to see happen in the social change space. But before we do that, I suppose for, for listeners who might not be familiar with with your work and with the book and, and, and things like that, shall we start off by just setting a bit of context? And I suppose the, the place I'd like to start is setting out the kind of the problem with the way things are at the moment. And we'll, we'll move on to more positive things. But I think we need to start off with that. Here's the issue that it needs to address and why, you know, we don't think that things are working the way things are at the moment. Uh, yeah, okay, just to do a bit of a sort of brief introduction around that. Yeah, so I guess uh, for me that mindset shift is really crucial in, not just in philanthropy actually in our world, in terms of, you know, our financial systems and the way that we do things. We know that uh, the way that our financial models and the way that the world works is destroying our planet and heavily exploiting marginalized and minoritized communities across the globe. So one of the reasons why I start with philanthropy, which is has a facade of, of doing good, is really to do a couple of things. One, go back to its original meaning, which is love of humanity, love of humankind, and not the notion of what we see today, which is wealthy people giving to the poor, which is how people see philanthropy. And then secondly, to move that mindset from giving to giving back, because so much of our financial systems and the way that we operate is built 
on racial lines and built on the exploitation of black and brown and indigenous communities across the globe. So you could look at, for example, you know, museums in this country as, as a, as a, example of uh, places that have plundered goods from the global south plundered goods mm -hmm. from loads of different communities across the globe and continue to profit from these riches and then charge people from the african diaspora to see what was rightfully theirs you know so that notion of giving back really lends itself to that same notion why should we be paying for stuff that is rightfully ours or that has been taken from us um so that notion of giving back i think is really important i think it's also important because whatever we create in the future in terms of new economic systems and ways of being cannot replicate what we've seen in the past which is for um lots of communities to be exploited in order for a very small minor percentage of people to get incredibly rich so however we create the new the new has to be something that is going to be regenerative and fair for all and then i guess finally the other notion and the other sort of key principle around giving back is around the fact that we are all interdependent and our actions in this country affect people in other countries um so we can't have this this idea that you know, things that happen millions of miles away is completely divorced from 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 us. You know, we've seen that from COVID as well, that, you know, so much of the world is linked. Um, mm -hmm. So this idea that we have borders in the first place, let alone closing borders, is just sort of an utter, utterly ridiculous notion. But we need a, a massive yeah. national conversation about these things and a massive re-education around so many of these things because um there's so much evidence experience around the things that i've just said but it's not the norm for people to believe that these things are actually real yeah and i think that's um one of the things that i found really interesting about the book is it, it's really about that sort of um, social change in the widest sense looking at societal issues and um obviously working in the sector we, we look a lot about uh, what charities are doing and how they're funded and that kind of thing but actually um as you say the, the giving back is not just about giving some money back but also giving back in terms of shifting power uh, one of the other things that came up for me was around um the sort of challenge to the traditional notion of charity and the, the system so thinking about the kind of charity sector if you like and the the sort of um typical ways of doing things uh shall we maybe just pick over some of the what you've seen from your perspective in terms of delivering work and being involved on the funding side and, and those different aspects what are the sort of challenges you've seen with that traditional model and what are some of the alternative ways of doing things and some of the kind of um positive examples some of those kind of positive case studies that you've seen through your work and, and that you've shared in the book yeah so the current model is you know very much built on preservation so you get paid to help people but not really solve or really attempt to solve the problem that's why so much of the philanthropic money the dollars and pounds ends up really funding um, services as opposed to trying to uh, you know address systems and you know systems uh, 
change in systems thinking. So it becomes really a, a cycle that preserves the power for philanthropists, uh, preserves the power for very, very large charities, which is not to say that they're not doing some semblance of good work, but often um, they're doing so by um, poverty pimping. So obviously by um, pulling the heartstrings in very negative way that dims the lights of communities. They're often doing so by appeasing the more vocal and active voices in communities um, with their work. Some of them are offsetting a lot of their extractive business behaviors in order to, um, or investment behaviors in order to be seen to be doing good. So that's the kind of current cycle that we have in in philanthropy, which is a replication, obviously, of, of our capitalist system. Um, where I always go back to is that you have a number of um, ways of doing things um, in terms of philanthropy. And again, I'm going back to love of humankind, where there is a level of um, what I would look at as a kind of more of a cultural approach than an institutional approach. And when I say a cultural approach, it means that the way that you give that that love that you're giving is very much based on risk and reward being really shared um, and not having these levels of hierarchy where however the giving be it resources ideas etc are based on the people that are most impacted by the issues so they are the ones that are deciding and where there is a level of interdependence in the way that 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 work or those resources are distributed and i think when you look at you know um new funds that have emerged like the black feminist fund and um, project Talawa, which uh, have been developed by global majority women for global majority women um you get to start to see where that cultural aspect of um philanthropy the love as well in philanthropy the original conception of the meaning um really is starting to take root in their practices because the risks and rewards are shared there is a global outlook you know it's not something that is restricted to you know we're just going to do some funding in the uk and that's it it's it's looking at how we are interdependent there's a lot more around um embodied practice so the people that are you know for want of a better word in charge of trying to develop these funds are living and breathing um a number of the issues that they're trying to to solve so what you're starting to see is and there's been many more historically so i'm naming those two as two recent funds that have been developed but you know this has been going on for years um but you've got something now which says these are the practices that we should be looking mm -hmm. at and we should be adopting um so that really excites me and what excites me as well is that the black feminist fund and project talawa um uh, the dream fund which was run by civic square in birmingham uh, maybe about two three years ago um you know they draw heavily on you know their ancestors and what communities have done for and within their communities in terms of their giving historically so they're drawing on practices of what you know um, communities would have done in order to survive oppression to be able to overcome things that 
um, have been problematic and ways in which they've supported each other. They're grabbing and using and honoring those traditions and creating the new from those traditions. So that really sort of excites me. Um, and it excites me also because so many people, um, when they're entering this space of, well, philanthropy is going through its identity crisis because there's mm. been so much critique of it in the last, you know, I mean, historically, it's always been a critique, but the last five or six years has probably been uh, more intensified or a plethora of, you know, articles, books and media really criticizing it. And for many people who get overwhelmed, they wonder, where do I start? What do I start with? And for me, I often come back to you now have these places like Black Feminist Fund, like Project Talawa. Two years ago, we had Resourcing Racial Justice, uh, We've got the Baobab Foundation in America, the Imperative Fund, the Pathways Fund has just developed over here. You now have places where if you're not quite sure, you still have to do the work to change. Mm -hmm. You now have a number of different places where as a donor, as a foundation, you can put money into organizations that have that more specialist knowledge to be able to distribute those funds and do it in a way that perhaps your systems won't allow you to do so at this particular time. Um, That to me is exciting, but it's also my way of saying, there's not an excuse anymore to Mm. say you can't do it or you don't know, um, because there are so many different places now where you can support really, really good work and people that are doing it in the right way. I would also say that they are still doing it in the right way in quite traditional um, contexts and formats and things Mm. of that nature. So I also would say while they are doing it really well and they are places to fund, they are also creating the new and those organizations need to be given the runway and the space to be able to have as much space as Carnegie and Rockefeller and all of the other funders to be able to, you know, do the things that they did, you know, ages ago, they had the space and resource to be able to create the new. And so for me, it's not just a matter of saying, here's, I don't know, million pound or two million pound for you to you know put out a particular fund to a particular group this is around a long-term sustained investment into those organizations so they can have the runway to create the new yeah because one of the one of the things that we're looking at there is uh, there's a lot of sort of traditional grant making and philanthropy happening but doing things a lot better in terms of having people with lived experience one sort of a better term involved in the decision making and that type of thing but still a funder awarding a grant to a charity or other type of organization to deliver some work and often as we said before about kind of responding to the situation as it is rather than trying to address the root causes mm-hmm. so i suppose there's there's still that need to go further isn't there for for some of those sorts of more system change approaches. I don't know if you've, are there some examples that you've seen that you might want to highlight in terms of some of, some of the organizations, not the funders, but the, you know, some of those organizations that are leading the way in terms of really raising the voices of people that are saying things need to change, things need to be different. Yeah, I, I tell you, I get really excited by 
you know, organizations like, uh, and organizations is the wrong word, but I'll use that shorthand, but, you know, collective movements, innovators, mm. however you want to deem them, like Yard, mm. Art House in Birmingham, um, Healing Justice London, um, a fantastic um, Whitney Isles Project 507, um, Free Black University, Contextual Safeguarding Network, Black Thrive, liberating knowledge um d woods uh, civic square there's a ton of different organizations and the reason why and, and just to say sorry to interrupt you but just to say for people listening we will put all of the links to these organizations on the web page so if anyone's trying to scribble down <laughs> or think or, or they're walking and listening and thinking oh, am i going to remember these to google them later on uh, we'll put them all on the web page so you can find i them. feel bad now because there's going to be so many that i'm going to there will be like now. yeah yeah you can never but, remember everyone so then you always feel bad about the ones I you feel bad but you know like and you but, know like, it's great to see that there are you know there are lots of examples that just you know kind of flow off the top of your head and and it, it and it's not you know and, and again as you were talking i remembered rekindle and power the fight as well um and the reason why i get always get excited by those organizations is largely because they are the ones that are creating the new um for me they are and I don't want to lump them into one because they're all very different mm. in what they do. So some cover mental health, some serious youth violence, some, you know, education, health. There's different ways yeah. that they look. Some are more academic than others. But I guess the thing that always um, excites me about what they're doing is that they're creating the future. They are creating a vision for the future. And when I look at the practices of, say, Healing Justice London in terms of how they are reconceptualizing what health looks like. When I think about some of the other groups that I've mentioned who are not just talking about how policing has to change, but are looking at things through the lens of what does a really protective society look like that means that the type of policing that we have is made redundant? You know, um, how do we move towards, like if you speak to Carleen Furman, Dr. Carleen Furman, a, a contextual safeguarding network, and she's dealing with lots of young people, you know, um, and child protection issues, which has been so much in the news recently. For me, she is redefining what child protection looks like. She's redefining what safeguarding looks like. And she comes from that perspective of how do you go from a base of protecting young people away from what we have now which is policing and fearing young people and how do you create the systems that enables and and the society actually it's not just the systems it's the mm. society that really starts to protect young people for me that you know when you hear Carleen speak and I could never do her brilliance, any justice in anything that I say. So you need to just listen to her directly. You know, we will look back in 20 years time and we will say it was utterly ridiculous that our child protection systems, all of it was not run in the way that Carleen is advising us to be able to be running our child protection systems. And so for me, that excites me because these are the ideas, these are the behavior and policy changes, and these organizations are the ones that are creating this, that is really 
the things that in years to come could and should be the standard in terms of the type of society that I think everyone or the majority of people in this country and across the globe wants us to to be in you know we want to be in a fair um a healthy society where we are um liberated from the systems of oppression where people have access to clothing good housing um a good education system but a good and honest education system where you know we are at the beginning of the start line with each other you know there's very few people that would turn around and fundamentally say those are horrible things you know if we had a society that valued our elderly um but also valued the voice of young people that maybe started our education at the age of seven instead of four and maybe we had circular classrooms because circular classrooms are better than square or rectangular ones or that young people have the right to play and we can learn through playing instead of rigid exams from the age of I don't know two years of age and stuff all of those things that you would look at and say these are really beautiful positive things that I would really like to see a society look like you know where our hours of work look fundamentally different where we've got time and space to be able to give back and where we're not spending time fearing people that live next door to us and things of that nature it's really hard for people to conceive that because it seems so big and so massive but i guess with the organizations that i've mentioned what they do is they provide a snapshot a snippet an example mm -hmm. of what that could look like and what that could look like to be systemized in a very very different way mainstreamed in a different way or where it is something that could spread um in a way that for example if in 30 years time our local authorities or education system completely breaks down because of our finances that you have an alternative that isn't going to be pushing more kids towards just examined based ways of attainment but like what rekindle conceives which is nurturing young people looking after their well-being you know giving them access to the politics that gives them a voice prepares them for the next stage of their careers and is not strictly based on you know some of the more rigid ways of how we educate young people that legitimately prepares them for the next stages of their lives and really looks after their mental and physical well-being um so for me that's the most beautiful thing i've got a piece in my book uh giving back which is around which is a chapter called liberatory visions and it's largely because of these really fantastic but often under-resourced um organizations and people that i draw so much energy from because i think they're doing phenomenal things i would love for them to be running our country and our world <laughs> yeah, yeah. But i know that if they were running the country and the world they would not be doing it under the current systems that oh, yeah, yeah. um that that we have at the moment and that is also really exciting so i want to see where those guys those people get more resources and as i said i come back to this some of it is quite simple for me um for years and years and years incredibly rich privileged and 
quite often extractive people have been given the money and resource and time to be able to develop their theories as scientists as data analysts as behavioral scientists as as um, academics as politicians as journalists to really create divisions in our world of the systems that they, they create what would it look like with the philanthropic money that we have to give some of the people that i've been speaking to that level or layer of resource to be able to create the new and to be able to reimagine our future in a way that is regenerative and is like fully reflective of the communities that are most impacted by those harms that is a phenomenal thing that philanthropy could contribute to and it's not going to happen in two years it's not going to happen in three years or four years but if you just had a concerted effort of, of, of funding and support to give those people and thinkers that clear runway, then you would start to see a shift in our systems. Yeah, because I think that's the that's the thing that's needed, isn't it? To take it from lots of those really positive examples that have achieved something often on a small scale. And as you say, it's a kind of ex an example of how things can be done. Yeah. Um, and then taking that to changing the system at a wider level is it's always the the challenge isn't it in terms mm. of how do you how do you take that positive example and then influence the people in power um and and enable that sort of larger change um mm. and there are obviously so many aspects to how you would need to do that in terms of the the political side and the the media side of things and, and all of that stuff i mean it's not it's not one thing you know, and I think yeah. that's the really important point here is that, you know, it's not going to be one single organization, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is what I come back to is that if you look at the way that our system of how organizations are resourced, it doesn't lend itself to success because, you know, social change is not going to take three years, you know, it doesn't mm -hmm. take three years for something to go from conception to you know radical change it takes a number of years for that to happen so if you're funding and resourcing things that you really believe in then you'd be doing it for 20 years not for three-year funding cycles you would also be doing it on the basis of a lot more trust which means being unrestricted with your funding and really acknowledging that social change is very rarely clean you know, you don't create this wonderful, beautiful theory of change and everything just runs according to plan. No, there's so many different factors, particularly with different election cycles and different people coming in and out of power that you have to account for. And you have to have really strong layers of trust in the people that you are supporting because you need them to be able to have to be able to navigate all of those changes and a lot of the restrictions that funders impose on people doesn't really give them the space to be resilient enough organizationally and infrastructurally to be able to withstand a number of those really significant changes i mean if a government comes in and suddenly changes the rules of the game in terms of funding or how you are resourced or they bring in a bill like the single identity bill or the um what was it the lobbying act um a few years ago that fundamentally could dismantle 
your ability as an organization to be able to um, to deliver the services that you're good at delivering or create the systems of change that you need, then there needs to be some funding and resourcing that enables an organization to be resilient to those changes. And funding at even a five-year cycle isn't sufficient to be able mm. to help organizations on that level. Yeah, so that there needs to be a real shift, doesn't there, in terms of how um, grant funders and philanthropists think about the way they support this sort of change, because the uh, traditional model is very much that we offer three-year grants of 30k a year, 50k a year, you know, even some of the really, really big funders, yeah. the grant sizes are not sufficient to achieve that change. And when they're linked to a particular um, project over a set period of time, um, as you say, that's not creating that space um, and resource for, to, to really deliver change, which is going to be more of a sort of 10 to 20 year horizon yeah. um, and and on a larger scale. Um, so there's, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting mind shift, but it's, I mean, when we talk about philanthropy and we think about the individuals that are involved and that have the means to actually make that change, who could, who could be making, you know, the kind of six, seven, eight, nine, ten figure gifts yeah. over, over decades. Um, there's, there's that huge chasm, isn't there, between the way they think about their private investing for a financial return versus their philanthropic investing um, for a social return. Um, so I wonder if there's a way that we can help to shift that mindset just so that people are thinking in those terms of actually, you know, rather than making a, a larger number of donations and rather than giving it to the university I went to or, you know, <laughs> that type of thing if they're thinking about actually when i invest in the next big startup and i'm you know i'm placing some really big bets to you know one of them is going to be the next amazon and that kind of thing mm. thinking about their philanthropy in some of those terms and thinking actually i need to take a risk and pick a portfolio of organizations or movements for change that are you know changing the system in a way i'd like to see it changed um, and maybe that's part of the challenge is that the change wouldn't wouldn't benefit them. Um, but thinking in yeah. that different way about, you know, making some of those kind of big bets over a long time period and really supporting those sort of movements. Um, well, that's what's but, really interesting, because in business, people will do that. You know, yeah. people will, in yeah. business, people will take a punt on something and... You know, and you see this actually a lot, you know, so in business, you'll see a couple of things. One, you'll see that, you know, people will just back stuff mm -hmm. and not worry too much if, you know, some of it doesn't work, you know, so they might have a one in 10 or one in five success rate because, you know, that one thing ends up being, I don't know, the next Amazon or the next big oh, yeah. thing. Um, which is just absolutely not the mindset whatsoever in in funding. And again, I'm not passing judgment on this, but I am saying that it's not the case where you can sit back and say wholeheartedly, oh, um, no one does this. You know, this isn't, 
you know, this is out of the realms of possibility to be thinking in this particular way. No, we know businesses and um, others will will take a punt and make a big bet and, you know, essentially say, okay, if three or four things don't work, but one thing really hits it big, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. We also know that, you know, a number of particularly right-wing you know, um, philanthropists, donors and stuff have spent millions and billions of pounds to, you know, really sway our politics mm. and to really push things in their favour that enables them to have more freedom to... Oh, yeah. And I suppose on, on the flip side, they're, they're supporting the inequity, aren't they, because they're benefiting from it in those cases. They, they, they are. And so, you know, we know that they'll be pushing for more uh, deregulation and, you know, minimizing social services and more tax breaks and all of those things. Yeah. Again, what would it look like if on the flip side, philanthropy, and again, this is not to say that philanthropy in its institutional form, you know, through donor advised funds, trust, charitable trusts and foundations, private giving has enough money to be able to compete with the amount of money that's given away in government. But if you had more of a, an effort and a more of a collective effort around things that you would say are just bad, right? <laughs> so our tax system and how it operates and the fact that, you know, um, so many people from low socioeconomic backgrounds are going to be hit really hard because of the cost of living crisis and have been historically anyway um but that just seems to be happening more but then if people were fairly paying their taxes then we wouldn't be hit so hard you know and there's plenty of economists and statisticians and analysis that have done the analysis of this to say if a certain percentage of wealthy people were paying their taxes as they should be um then um that doesn't mean that the government would act in the right way in terms of their policies and stuff but you are saying that this surely should be something that as a philanthropy should be punting for but then maybe you're looking at it and saying well actually a lot of these foundations they they get their tax breaks and this is undoing their own bit so that's where you turn around and you say is this really serving the most marginalized communities because if it was to serve the most marginalized communities then you'd probably have the majority of our big charitable trusts and foundations doing something around tax, probably doing something around um, land and housing, you know, reform um, and things of that nature that essentially matters a hell of a lot to people that are not in great circumstances or facing disadvantage in this country. The absence of doing that says to me that the people that are in charge are very divorced from a lot of those issues, don't care, are ignorant to it, um, but they're definitely divorced from from it. But you turn around and you say, well, actually, there's nothing to stop them from being able to put money into these things that matter most to the number of people in this country and, of course, across the globe. So, yeah. Um, and as you say, there are so many aspects to it, um, and, and sometimes that's what, then um, stops people from doing anything, doesn't it? That they get they get kind of overwhelmed with it. Um, as a bit of a thought exercise, if you yourself had a large fortune 
and you can pick your number as to what that looks like, how, <laughs> how much we need to, to create the change we want to see. Um, but what, what would be your approach? Where do you think you would start with um, uh, enabling the change that you'd like to see? So I, I go back to something I said earlier, which is, you know, I'm fortunate because I've been lucky enough to work with or spend time with, interview amazing people that are doing fantastic things across the globe. And I would just, if I had the money, just I would give it to them and just give it to them over as long a period of time as possible <laughs> to do what they need to do. Um, I wouldn't worry about what they were going to spend it on. I wouldn't worry so much on um, if they have a year or two years where they're not doing anything with the money. It's These are just phenomenal people that are doing phenomenal things that need the same level of resource, space, time, um, input, resources, and things to be able to take their ideas from conception into something that can be either mainstreamed or changed stuff or whatever, or stuff that might fizzle away. It's okay. You know, um, as I said, if you look at a ton of those right-wing philanthropists in the States, they've funded tons of money to different think tanks and lobbying groups and whatever's, and I'm sure that a ton of that money has gone down the, the toilet, um, but some of it has stuck and some of it has changed the way that people vote and other bits like that. As I said, for me, I'm really interested in one, what are the four or five things that are key things that we should be really concentrating on? So for me, it's around reparations and where this money is liberated from our current systems and given back. I'm also interested in tax justice and, and what that looks like. So that might be two things that you might concentrate on. But fundamentally, for me, I still go back to I don't have the answers to so many of these things. And the people that I'm referring to, some of them really do have fantastic answers. Others will say, mm, I have a hunch, but I need the resource to try. I would just give it to them and give them X amount of money and just let them get on with doing it. And as I said, it's not just third sector organizations. It will be you know, activist groups, it would be academics, it'd be behaviorist scientists, it would be, you know, public, you know, officials and others, mm. it wouldn't be just one thing, it would be those people that legitimately have an idea of how our society and how society operates can be reimagined, and what that would look like, and we just need that clear runway to be able to achieve that. Yeah. Um, and given that you don't have that huge fortune, I'm assuming. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, what, what are some of the steps that you are taking at the moment? Could you maybe tell us about some of the work that you're doing um, uh, probably at 10 years time or, or some of the other things you're involved in? Yeah, so I, I think first, you know, with, with 10 years time, we, we work with, you know, um, ambitious donors and, and foundations to help them, you know, repair harm and to rebalance power and to do so by resourcing racial and economic justice with care and confidence. So we, we create these learning experiences and opportunities for people 
that have the the means and resource and the will to be able to take a more reparative way in how they resource um, their work. Um, and we take those learning journeys, you know, over a period of months. Some of it is educational programming. Some of it is more one-to-one work. But we do so often by reducing that proximity between them as wealth holders and the communities that have the solutions and the knowledge and the power um, and the ideas about how some of these issues that they might be interested in, um, uh, you know, helping them taking on the journey to how they reinvest differently. We want them to look at their wealth in a more holistic um, manner as well. So we don't divorce what their giving will be from how they've accumulated their wealth and their investments. So we take them through a learning process that enables them to really understand that and to not offset, you know, their giving with, sorry, offset and use their philanthropy as something to alleviate guilt, mm-hmm. um, but to really look at this more holistically. So we do that through um, 10 years time. I do lots of sort of personal coaching with um, senior leaders that also want to, you know, go through that particular journey. But, you know, as with 10 years time with the coaching that I do, it's often that space for people um who might not be able to know how to manage change or will not know what the first steps will be really just taking them through some of the action planning steps that enables them to action things but also giving them that safe space to be able to play out what's on their mind and where some of the knots and the mud might be for them as well so i do that and then of course you know with my writing and advocacy and other bits um you know very much um speaking to people um about what the reimagined future could look like Mm -hmm. so as much as i like to critique you know philanthropy i never do so without sort of offering solutions which is Mm -hmm. what giving back is around it's Mm -hmm. majority of that book is very much around people that are creating change and how to resource that or what some of the principles can be around how to resource some of that particular change so those are sort of three ways that um i sort of contribute to some of the changes that we're speaking of yeah and can i just ask uh, the work uh, takes time i suppose for for a lot of traditional funders that's quite quite a radical change for them so i'm just curious with that like do you have a lot of funders kind of knocking on your door one wanting to um kind of go down that path or or are you out there banging on doors and they're trying to um you know really make the case that they need to be doing it and and kind of you know is it hard going trying to get people on board with that or or is there actually a lot of appetite for it what where or maybe it's somewhere in between yeah it's i would say there's more so I've only been at 10 years time since May, 2021. Okay. So the context in which I came in was very different to perhaps what it was before, because mm. it was sort of post lockdown COVID, mm. post George Floyd. So um, I think the thirst, as well as the anxiety, mm. and it's probably on any given day for a funder, it could be anxiety there and <laughs> is is really there. So we engage a lot with a lot of people. Um, 
particularly next generation wealth holders or people that are new to philanthropy because their entry point has been the last couple of years and they're like we don't know what to do with this Mm -hmm. we can feel that something is wrong so we're speaking a lot with those and that that tends to be our main you know base in terms of who we work with is high net worth individuals who probably were casual givers beforehand Mm -hmm. and have seen what's happened over the last couple of years so um we're still niche and we're still you know we as uh uh, philanthropy advisors we take a stand in terms of what Mm -hmm. we do we are very political we're very challenging we do things with lots of care and confidence um but we're also really keen for people to invest differently um and to to invest in racial justice to invest in systems change to really look at root causes and that's why we curate and create learning experiences for people that is very bespoke because we really want to understand what lies in their heart we want to understand what their values are um we really want to build something that doesn't divorce you know the logic that they have from what exists in their heart in terms of how they give so it takes time um and we work on the basis that we work with people very intimately it's very relational um in depth as well um and some people are absolutely up for it they're absolutely up for that because they really want to do this they 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 don't just want to get money out they really want to understand what these systems are and they want to speak to different people to understand what they are for others it's more of a i need to just get this out of my system and (laughs) get some money out and alleviate the guilt straight away and stuff like that and so with some of them we can work with them in terms of due diligence and just say yep you want to get money out we'll do the due diligence and get it to the right spaces others want to go through a longer learning journey um i think the second thing that i'll say add to that is in terms of charitable trusts and foundations we're talking to a lot of them because um you know i think before no big organization wants to be seen to not know what to do um but again in the last couple of years there has been an element of how do we resource um Uh, from our organization's perspective some of the things that are really really quite huge while also being under a level of scrutiny that charitable trusts and foundations were not under scrutiny before Mm -hmm. so if you look at some of the big challenges that we have now which is obviously climate um obviously it's you know racial injustice obviously it's ai and what that means for us as well and the cost of living crisis and and how long that will go on for um you know and this just post covid lockdown melancholy as well these are really really huge huge issues and it's not to say we haven't had huge issues in the past or historically we always have but I think now unlike maybe 10 15 years ago where most of the charitable trusts and foundations no one knew who they were no one knew much about this month no one there wasn't a ton of reports or books about philanthropy you now have a different uh, uh atmosphere um different conditions now where these funders 
are no longer under the radar trying to tackle these big issues and if they don't tackle them then it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. you know um it always matters but i think more publicly now it matters because there's a higher level of of account towards the work mm -hmm. that they do um and we've seen that also with people you know like 360 giving in the grant mm -hmm. now just greater data you know the funders for race equality alliance and civic power fund uh, civil society inquiry, civil society inquiry that um, Julia Unwin did a few years ago. These are all organisations, institutions, race equity index as well that are now holding funders to account. So it means that maybe five, six, seven years ago they wouldn't have been speaking to us or they wouldn't have had that conversation i think now because the context has changed so drastically in terms of our world but also the scrutiny of philanthropy i think that's now changed and is it um is it typically the the sort of usual suspects of the grant making foundations that you you know there are kind of maybe 20 or 30 that are, mm -hmm. you might expect to be engaging in those conversations or is it is it broader than that are you also it's getting some of those that. family trusts that no one's ever heard of and you know there's very little known about them and you you wouldn't necessarily think they were the ones to be having those conversations so so the ones so i mean we work across the board so we work with you know charitable trusts and foundations we work with high net worth individuals but also next gen high net worth individuals self-made high net worth individuals and corporate foundations so we work across the board and our client base is uh, across the board um but i would say that yeah a lot of them are obscure um <laughs> and not some of the, so so we engage with a number of the people that are the main players yes mm. um in our programs but there are a lot of unusual suspects there are also a few people that we've been working with who are not necessarily the coolest of the cool in mm. terms of the work that they do but are just really concerned and wanting to do something really really different and i mm. think that to me is really interesting because some of their practices are actually a lot more progressive than some of the cooler people in the mm. way that they're doing things so um i think it's across the board um you know and we're you know going to be launching a couple of things at 10 years time later this year which i'll, I'll announce a bit later mm -hmm. um that's going to address some of these um particular issues that we've um that we're coming across you know we've just been doing a bit of research and data gathering from the the work we've been doing over the last sort of six to eight months and so we're going to kind of respond to some of that in terms of helping people navigate their way through some of the issues that they're facing with their resources no, great that's all really good to hear um, and definitely when you when you launch stuff later in the year let me know and i'll i'll be sure to share and support that stuff um, and in the meantime if people if that are curious as to uh, you know wanting to maybe get involved with 10 years time it, is there um particular place to point them to is there a particular program or, or anything or would it just be to check out the website yeah so the best thing would be to just go on to our website which is uh 10yearstime.com um you'll be able to get in contact with myself or anyone else in 
the team um, about the work that we do. So it will tell you about all of the programs that we do from, um, as I said, the learning journeys that we do with um, uh, funders and high net worth individuals, right through to the grant givers program, which really sort of educates people that are in grant making roles. Um, we're also partners in the 2027 associates program that, you know, um, gets working class um, background professionals um, who are interested in transitioning into careers in grant making and social investment um into um uh into grant making and social investment roles um and also a lot of the coaching that we do as i said we do sort of um uh, trustee coaching senior level sorry senior leadership coaching as well so it will outline all of the programs as well as the research that we do as well um and for people um like myself, for example, who are not um, philanthropists or working in, in grant making and that side of things, but would would like to support the sort of changes that we're talking about and, and take some kind of actions in our own ways. So, you got any any sort of recommendations you would make in terms of things people can do, whether they're running a charity or a member of staff at any level or trustees, social entrepreneurs, fundraisers, you know, whatever. Well, or, or anyone in society, anyone who wants to kind of support, uh, you know, this move to a more equitable society. Uh, what what sort of tips would you give us? Well, I mean, one, you know, um, read. So, you know, if you're interested in giving back, as I said, my book, Giving Back, but there's also a fabulous book called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, um, which mm -hmm. sort of outlines some of the, the issues that's in giving back. I think more broadly, from an educational perspective, a lot of the work from Sir Hilary Beckles around how Europe underdeveloped the Caribbean um, and some of the roots of, you know, sort of racial capitalism and stuff, you know, Sir Hillary is just amazing on, on you know, some of those issues. Um, Angela Sani's books, um, I think she's got a new one coming out called The Patriarchs, um, but she's also had two previous books like Inferior and Superior, looking at the roots of race science, but also patriarchy. You know, I think some of those, you know, um, readings for me are really important because when we when I talk about some of these issues, and as I said, for many people, it's not the norm. So they have not been educated in a way mm. that suggests that the things that I'm saying to them is real to them. Um, so the reason I suggested some of those books in terms of where can you get your grounding from in terms of evidence, if that's what you were seeking, you know, Angela's books, Hilary Beckles books, those give some of really good grounding in terms of the evidence, the experiences that really are the foundations on what the work that I do and others do, um, you know, some of the foundations are, are there. So I would say in terms of education, you know, do that. The second thing I'd say is a number of the organizations that I've mentioned, you know, find out more about their work, go on the websites, you know, um, donate money to to them, you know, um, mm. you know, listen to them on a you know, variety of podcasts. I used to have a podcast called Just Cause, which interviewed Amara Spence from Yard Art House and Imi Core from Civic Square and others, you know, listen to 
their conceptions of the world. You know, you don't have to listen to mine. You know, Ben Lindsay, I interviewed from Power to Fight and Carlina on Just Cause. You know, go onto their website, listen to them speak, Google them or YouTube them, whatever it is, and hear more about what they're doing. They can articulate themselves better than I can articulate their work. <laughs> sure. um, but but donate to their work, man. Mm -hmm. Find out more about what they're doing, support their work, because I think they're amazing change makers. Yeah, I think as you say, it's um, regardless of whether you've got a fortune or not, it's, it's you know, give give that support to people who are doing good Absolutely. work and let them get on and do it. Absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard to find them and it's, you know, they're not on adverts in between, mm -hmm. I don't know, Coronation Street <laughs> or whatever. Uh -huh. um, so people don't know about them or because they're not household names, you know, they're not necessarily going to go there. But, you know, as I said, I highlight a lot of these organizations in my book. Um, please go out and support their work, find out more about their work. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I know the rest of my afternoon is going to be uh, <laughs> searching up all of these various organizations as I listen back to the recording. Um, I'll, I'll get the links so that everyone else can find them as well. Um, certainly support some. Uh, I would I'd love to get a couple of introductions from you to to some of those people to to get on the show as well, and um, yeah. I know certainly we can direct people to the recordings you've done already. But um, yeah, would love to love to hear some of those voices here and and carry these conversations on as well. Brilliant. Um, so definitely um, be doing that. It's been really enjoyable. I know you've got a board meeting to dash off to hopefully a bit of time to get a sandwich or something yeah, yeah. beforehand uh is is there anything before we go anything else that you'd like to point people towards so i think we've probably we've got a lot of links there but uh, any final words no there, there, there's plenty there for people to uh, yeah, digest on. Um, so it's it's all good but thanks for having me i appreciate it yeah no problem at all thank you i'll definitely share all the links to those organizations books websites everything else uh thanks derek thank you very much it's been a real pleasure thanks for coming on appreciate it alex take care have a lovely day thank you for listening to this episode of the charity impact podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end just one more thing before you go if you listen to the podcast i'd love to hear what you think you can either leave a review on spotify apple etc or tag me in a post on linkedin or twitter at alexblake underscore k-e-d-a or just drop me an email. For details on all episodes with notes and links to resources, head to our website, kedaconsulting.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care.